Hello and welcome to the CPA's podcast, Mindful, which finally has a name and has started a proper podcast series. Now, one day we might have more bells and whistles like theme music or credits at the end or that thing where they tell you to like and subscribe and write a five-star review on Stitcher, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, who knows? Maybe one day some segment of this podcast will be brought to you by Kind Bars and another part by a hot new home kombucha brewing kit. Uh, until that day comes, however, you will have to contend with my dry voice and that of the other participants in this inaugural series. My name is Eric Bowman. I'm the communications person at the Canadian Psychological Association. And today, we're going to be talking about isolation and dementia during the winter months of a global pandemic. My guest today hails all the way from Chile, downtown Toronto. Hello, everybody. My name is uh, Yael Goldberg. I am a clinical psychologist and neuropsychologist working at Baycrest. I'm just wondering what kind of uh, problems people might be experiencing with isolation, living alone, living remotely before the pandemic began, uh, and what kind of uh, situations might they find themselves in? So that's a great question. Um, people who are more isolated tend to have a harder time socializing when social opportunities do present themselves because they're just so used to being alone. So there could be issues with motivation to socialize, desire to engage. There's also not someone regularly regularly involved in their life that they could use as a, a springboard or a sounding board to bounce ideas off of, uh, you know, to give them that reality check. So sometimes People who are more isolated can get stuck in their heads a bit more, um, where their thoughts become more important than they might necessarily be when there are more people around or more more engagement. Lack of, you know, stimulation from various sources, whether it be family, friends. You know, there are there are some people who are who put, who are, we call them like homebodies who prefer not to go out regularly. They're just more comfortable at home in their own company. And, and that might be their choice because that's their safe space. And then there are other people who may want to go out but can't because of either health issues or, you know, medical or con other constraints. And so it really, it really depends on whether the person has been choosing that isolation or whether they are just forced into it by circumstance. And does that affect the way that people have responded since this pandemic and the lockdown began? I mean, if you're isolated by choice, if you're a homebody, as you say, uh, are you just used to this? And does it affect you in any way uh, differently than it would have beforehand? So I think people who are isolated by choice before the pandemic probably are having a, a, a more easier, an easier time with the forced isolation in the pandemic because, like you said, they're, they're used to it. But even still, I think when when something is uncertain, you know, it can lead to a lot of anxiety, especially when we don't know how long this pandemic is going to last. We don't know what the effects are going to be. There's more vigilance about, you know, watching the news and, and looking at numbers. And so there's the situation is quite different, even for those people who are used to being at home. There's, you know, lockdowns outside of the home. So, you know, no faith gatherings, no holiday celebrations with family and friends that even people who are 
some bodies might have previously enjoyed. So there's more of a, a disconnect from their community at large. There aren't that many opportunities, even if they wanted to go out. So there's, there's kind of that element of control being taken away, which many people feel very anxious about because it reminds them of their mortality. It reminds them of the fact that there, there is actually very little in their control in the big picture sense. Um, and that's scary. That's a scary thought. You mentioned, you know, uh, an increased watching of the news, paying attention to the numbers as they go up and uh, the lockdowns and the current situation. Would you advise people to take a break from the news, to limit the amount that they watch, that they take in, uh, that they consume? And I guess further to that, the time that they spend online. You know, it's, it's a great question. And I think the answer is very individualized. I, I, I would say, like, the guiding principle would be to monitor how you react when you do see a news piece or go online. You know, if it's increasing your anxiety or creating more of an uncertain mood or you're becoming more irritable, then, yeah, I would recommend not doing that. Maybe maybe the recommendation isn't stop cold turkey. Maybe the recommendation is taper down. So if you were, you know, checking every day, five times day, then maybe reduce it to once a day. If you were checking once a day and even that was creating some negative emotion for you, even subconsciously, then I would say check once a week, you know? So so it, it really all depends on the person and how they react to the information that they're taking in. But I will caution that, as with all things, we need to be responsible consumers of information. There's a lot out there, and we could overwhelm ourselves with everything that's available. I think we really need to hone in on evidence-based information. We need to know what source of the information is, if it's a credible source or not, and really think about what impact or what importance this information is bringing to our lives. Do we actually need to know this, or do we just get stuck in this obsessive cycle because we are so anxious already and we feel that knowledge is power, so we want to know more about it, but we take it a little too far. I think that's something that's happening to a lot of people right now, right? There's so much disinformation about coronavirus and about a ton of other things that are, that's out there right now. And the longer I think one spends online, the more likely one might be to fall down one of those rabbit holes. Um, are people who are isolated more at risk for that kind of uh, disinformation to creep in? Well, I think like I mentioned earlier, when you're alone, you don't always have someone to give you that reality check and bounce ideas off of. So potentially, but just because someone's isolated does not necessarily mean that they're not a responsible consumer of information, but they don't necessarily have to go hand in hand. A lot of us have family members. Uh, I have a mom who's recently moved uh, nearby here and she wanted to be close to me and my sister so she moved from Winnipeg and uh, my sister just had a baby so she my mom wanted to be there and you know take care of the baby and this move had been planned long before COVID hit and now she's kind of stuck out in Perth all by herself in the house and can't really see people too much because we can't really see anyone at the moment. Uh, what advice would you give to friends, family members uh, who have a family member or who have somebody close to them who is in a situation like that. Um, 
my mom certainly is not about to start doing Zoom calls or figuring out FaceTime or Skype. She has no interest in any of that. Uh, so we have to do the phone calls and that, uh, you know, that's good enough. But uh, is there something else that people can do? Uh, I think it's about connection, right? So, you know, the, the situation you described actually reminds me very much of my own birth story. So my, my parents, my dad is from Winnipeg and I, that's where I was born as well. And my mom was a California girl, and uh, her mom was all set to come down uh, when she was giving birth to me. But, you know, she was, her mom was late and weather, and she ended up not having her mom there and being very isolated in Winnipeg. And, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a familiar story. And I think, pandemic or not, we need to find ways to connect with our loved ones and connect with people that give us a sense of, grounding now to not be present at the birth of a grandchild or not be involved in those life cycle events is very painful it, it's tough and to think about the reasons why you know when you think about oh well, i couldn't attend or i couldn't be there for my daughter having a baby because of the pandemic you know it just reminds us of how little control there is and so that's very very scary but i think like you said some people are not comfortable with technology or learning new 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 platforms. So using the tools that are available, such as the phone or email, writing letters, and increasing the frequency. So instead of you know just having a you know call every couple of days or once a day, you know having check in regular check in points, especially for new parents, you know who might be very overwhelmed and are not being able to benefit from the support of of help from their family, having having check-in times like, okay, I'm going to call you, mom, I'm going to call you at breakfast, or, or mom saying to daughter, I'm going to call you at breakfast time to see how you're doing, and then we're going to check in again at lunchtime. So just all you have to do is just make it until lunch, and then I'm going to call you, and we're going to have a check-in. And then once we do that, then, okay, we're going to have a, a dinner time check-in. So breaking up the day into smaller manageable bite-sized pieces can make it feel less isolating, you know, using email or even old-fashioned letter writing, whatever someone's comfortable with. If if there are people who are more comfortable to learning how to use technology, you know, then, then that opens up a little bit more freedom. But ultimately, it's about connection and doing it in a way that's comfortable. Now, I'm wondering, you mentioned earlier about uh, how this keeps getting pushed back and pushed back and uh, we started out, we left in March and it was going to be two weeks and then it was going to be, oh, maybe more like two months. And now it looks like it, uh, there might not be an end in sight, uh, at the moment. Does the constant pushing back of the goalposts make a big difference in, uh, people's lives in terms of anxiety or, uh, should they be thinking about it in a certain way that doesn't allow that to, uh, be a source of, of anxiety? Uh, well, that's really a two-pronged question. I think to answer the first part, yes, uh, I, I do fully believe that not having an end in sight, not knowing if a goalpost is actually firm or if it's going to get moved again, I think that creates that uncertainty, creates a heightened anxiety. And in terms of, you know, should people look, be looking at it differently, like I said earlier, just, you know, accepting accepting the fact that there are some things in life that we do not know and focusing on the fact that it's okay to not know those things 
and reminding ourselves of the areas of our life in which we do have control and reminding ourselves of the areas of our lives which we do know things. Because reminding themselves of the things that they know for sure that no pandemic could ever change. Like, for example, I know that I love my daughter no matter what. Or I know that, you know, the sun is going to rise tomorrow no matter what. And then just building from there. Because, honestly, we all do tolerate a certain amount of risk in our daily lives every day, right? Mm -hmm. But, I mean, even going to the grocery Mm. store at the moment, right? There's a risk that you could catch COVID when you're at the grocery store. But you kind of have to go and... There's no way around it. Sure. But so some people are more uh, high risk and they are not comfortable uh, tolerating that degree of risk, right? Everyone has different levels of comfort with how much risk they're willing to take. So for those people who are not comfortable with that degree of risk, you know, they might be relying more on Instacart or other um, grocery delivery services or friends or relatives who could drop food off. Or meal kits have become very popular as well. Mm-hmm. But what I was what I was trying to go for was just the idea that, you know, okay, here's a good example. Uh, sometimes weather forecasts will say, you know, 30% chance of rain today. And so knowing that when you leave the house in the morning, you know that there's a chance of rain. Are you going to take an umbrella? Well, it depends. If they say that there's a 30% chance of rain, probably not going to take an umbrella. If they say there's a 70% chance of rain, you're going to take an umbrella. But that's just me, right? Someone else might look at it and say, like, 30% chance. Oh, I'm, you know, definitely taking an umbrella, right? So everyone has a different approach to how they're going to tolerate risk. Oh, not me. But Uh, I would say... It could be 90%, and I'm throwing caution to the wind. No umbrella for me. I'm I'm banking on that 10% coming through. Yeah. And so there's a, a lot of variability, but, you know, what I would say is know yourself, know how much risk you're willing to tolerate, and remind yourself of the areas of, of risk that you do tolerate and try to build from that, right? So you drive a car, you know that there's a risk that, God forbid, there could be an accident, but that doesn't prevent you from driving, right? That's a risk you're willing to tolerate. Mm-hmm. So just taking that and building on that and saying, okay, if I could tolerate this amount of risk, I could probably tolerate a little bit more and then a little bit more and then a little bit. So just building on what you already have. So is this the kind of thing that you deal with in your day-to-day at your practice? You're in Toronto, I think, right, with Baycrest? Yes, I'm I'm in Toronto. And um, what I see is actually very non-traditional for a clinical psychologist or neuropsychologist, to be honest. Um, What I do is um, behavior management for people that have behavioral and psychological symptoms of dementia. So I actually function as a clinician leader on the behavioral neurology unit at Baycrest, which is a 20-bed inpatient unit. Um, All the people there have some form of dementia with other behaviors, and I support the point-of-care staff in managing managing behaviors through um, integrated behavior care plans. I run caregiver support groups for the family members who are... um, of the loved ones. Um, so I do things like that. So I don't have a very traditional practice. Earlier in my career, I, I did work in private practice and I, and I did therapy with people that had mood and anxiety disorders and things like that. But right now, it's not my day-to-day. I used to work at the Dementia Society here in Ottawa and uh, I'm still in touch with a lot of the people from there, the caregiver support groups and so on. 
And uh, it's really heartbreaking to see a lot of the people who are in long-term care homes who end up absolutely stuck there, unable to leave their rooms for, you know, days, weeks at a time. And only now are some family members allowed to go and visit from a distance. Uh, It's really hard for everybody, I think, in this circumstance. You know what? It really, really is. I mean, it's it's forced so much separation between uh, loved ones. It, there's a lot of guilt attached to that, right? So on the caregiver's side or the family member's side, it's, they feel horrible that they can't be there. It creates a sense of helplessness. It's like, okay, what am I doing or what can I can't do anything to make sure that my loved one is being cared for properly, that they're getting the right attention they need. I have no idea if they've been showered. I just have to take this staff or the team's word for it that my loved one is healthy and safe and functioning and being fed properly and cleaned. There's also a lot of guilt about, well, if they're stuck in there and they can't function, how, how can I go for a walk? Or how can I, you know, live my life when they don't have that option? Uh, there's also a lot of fear, right? Like, what if something happens to them while they're there? What if they get exposed somehow and I'm not there to help them and to walk them through it? There's a lot of emotion on the part of the the family member slash caregiver. And then for the person who's, you know, in the long-term care facility or hospital, depending on their level of cognition, you know, it can be very traumatic. For someone who is really not oriented or not aware, then it may not make as much of an impact. Think about it. Ignorance is bliss. Mm-hmm. If they didn't really re- recognize their family member before or, or know what was happening before, then it might not make as much of an impact now. But if they are aware, and especially if they can't communicate it use verbally, using words, then imagine the pain and suffering that they must be experiencing. They may have some capacity, but they may not fully understand why all of a sudden, you know, their husband or wife has stopped coming to visit or all of a sudden, they can't see their children or grandchildren, especially with, with people that have memory problems. They may not remember, even if they're told, they may remember for a few minutes, but then they may not remember, you know, even 10 minutes later or two hours later, why they feel so lonely. And that actually leads to an increase in the behavior. And, and we call them responsive behaviors or BPSD or neuropsychiatric symptoms of dementia, but really you know, the belief is that this is a response to the situation where, you know, there's a, a need that's going unmet that they can't actually communicate. So they can't tell you if they're lonely or sad or scared or bored. And so they might act out by being aggressive or being very vocal or refusing to eat, refusing to take their medicine or refusing to shower. So it's really had uh, a very, very high significant impact across the board. And I know my friends at the Dementia Society here have been pretty innovative in adjusting the support groups. So a lot of the support groups that they ran were exercise programs, music programs, and they've managed to turn them into virtual programs. And they've been really surprised uh, at the uptake and the number of people, especially, uh, you know, of course, those who are still able to be at home uh, would join these programs with their caregivers. And uh, almost everybody has jumped right into it, and they're doing just fine at home. And it's kind of a remarkable thing to see. I'm wondering if your practice has changed in that way. Are you doing some of these support groups online now? 
Yes, absolutely, and great question. And um, I want to talk about my individual practice, but also some of the things that have been going on in the unit. So talked about technology and some hesitation for the older generation to engage in that. But if they have some support and the technology is, is set up for them, then it can be an incredible resource. We've, we've been doing um, family visits on FaceTime or Skype or whatever, like video conferencing platform where the family members can actually see their loved ones and know that they're okay and reconnect. And, you know, even for those who can't verbalize, still seeing their family member, there's that glimmer of recognition in some folks that really makes it all worth it. You know, now that visitation is allowed again, then we're relying less on technology, but we're still using it for family caregivers and, and loved ones. I find it amazing, though, to see how adaptable people actually are. And, you know, when you anticipate that something's going to be a bridge too far, it rarely is uh, for even people in the most dire of circumstances. People are so resilient, much more than we often realize. When people go through hard times, uh, other people might look on and say, well, how did you do it? And the answer often is, well, I, I just did. You know, you, you never know what you're capable of until you're caught to it. And, and most people will rise to the challenge. They might not think that they're capable of it, or they might not think that they will if given that, if, if they're put there. But when they are put there, they do rise. And they have the support or the network of people that can help them rise, right? No, no, one, no one has to be isolated. Even if they're physically isolated, there are so many resources available like in terms of helplines or friends or any, any, there are a lot of supports available to help people rise to these challenges and to, and to rise above. Absolutely. And that brings me to my final question for you. Uh, and I'm thinking about your mom and my mom, and I'm wondering if isolation is worse when it happens in Winnipeg. <laughs> uh, you know what? Weather has a huge impact, right? Cause I imagine it does. We have gone through the pandemic in almost every season now, and we're heading back into winter. And to think back to, you know, last when we first started in March, I immediately started working from home. And there was a real motivation to, like, every day bundle up in my winter coat and go for that walk. And it was, after some time, it was tough. It was tough to force myself to do that. As soon as the summer, you know, the warmer weather came around, it was much easier to get out for those walks every day, or even if it's not every day, but as often as possible. And we're heading back into winter now, and I think that a lot of people are, frightened about how that's going to impact their motivation to continue to be active. A lot of people are, are concerned about how that's going to impact both their mental health and their physical health. I think we'll, we'll have to see how it plays out, but I think, you know, the most important thing is staying connected in whatever, whatever way a person can. Stay connected to your loved ones. Stay connected to people who care about you. Stay connected to coworkers, you know, whether it's a, it's a text or an email or a weekly Zoom team meeting, you know, just just stay connected. Remember that we're all in this together, and no one has to be alone. For sure, and I appreciate you taking my question seriously. I really just wanted to start a feud with Winnipeg. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today, Uh, Dr. Yale Goldberg, clinical psychologist at Baycrest in Toronto. It's been a real pleasure and very informative. Thank you.
You're very welcome. My pleasure. Stay connected to friends, to family, and to coworkers. And stay connected to the people who care about you. We'll leave it at that and continue our series on winter and the pandemic as we move across Canada here on Mindful. We started in Newfoundland, spoke to Dr. Yael Goldberg in Toronto today, and tomorrow we're heading to Windsor. We'll see you then.